Welcome. Glad you're here with us this morning to worship. Thanks to the band. Thank you for everyone singing with us. And thank you, Pastor Stephanie, for praying for us. Um, We're starting a new series today. And uh, it's a series that I want to start with some really specific, kind of some practical things and then move into some more deeper um, interior things, maybe. So um, we're going to be looking at why we are certain things here at Northwest. And so um, we're going to start today with why we're free Methodists, because I realize that a lot of you are free Methodists in more recent years. You came here because you had friends here, or you encountered somebody who came here, or you wandered in uh, because you saw our church and were just looking for a church and bounced in here and found us. And we're just thankful for that. A few of us have been free Methodists a long time and have a heritage that is built in. And, and a couple of you here share that heritage with me. And so for, for those of us, you know, we maybe need a little refresher course. Everybody else is pretty fresh on this, what I found in free Methodism and I like. But, you know, there's a few of us, I could name you, you know who you are, that uh, we go back a few generations in free Methodism, and, and our default is we're here because of dad and mom and grandpa and grandma and great-grandpa and great-grandma, and this is who we were, and you guys need to brush up on this stuff, because uh, we need to be reminded that it's not just about heritage and legacy, those are powerful things. But there are expressions of free Methodism that we want to be about right now for our generation. So we're going to start with this. And then, and, and by the way, uh, Pastor Stephanie prayed so well and so eloquently because following the video at the beginning, we are connected to people all over the world who have identified themselves and have chosen to connect with us as free Methodists. And there are a lot of them. And so we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2, 1.3 million free Methodists in the world that we know of, that we have counted. Um, In the country of the Democratic Republic of Congo that we've been praying for because they've experienced so much struggle and war, um, there are more free Methodists in the DRC than there are in the United States now. They have eclipsed us. There's a lot of them. Of course, that said, there's a lot of people in the DRC. Um, This one is interesting to me. In the country of China, we don't count them because we don't want everyone to know about them because it's dangerous to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and even... Uh, a part of the Free Methodist Church. And so this is speculation, but it's, I get this from pretty good sources. Speculation is there are more Free Methodists in China than the rest of the world combined. So you think about that. If there's 1.2 million of us that we know about in the world, and there may be more in China than all of that, it's huge and amazing. And God does amazing things. I want to start by telling you a story, and then I'm going to go on to where we're going to head with this whole series. So uh, many of you here know that my heritage is missionary heritage. My parents were missionaries. My grandparents were heavily involved in mission work, even though they were not uh, assigned to the mission field. Um, 
And I've heard missionary stories all my years growing up. We told some of those stories. This is one of my favorites, and it doesn't come from Africa, which is my background. It comes from China. So before World War II, going back in Chinese history, there was a famous missionary who is one of the most influential missionaries in the history of Western Christianity, and his name was Hudson Taylor. Anybody heard of Hudson Taylor? Great guy. Moved to China and moved in with people there and shared the gospel, and it just took off. And Hudson Taylor was just a powerful historical figure. Well, his son's name was James Hudson Taylor, and James Hudson Taylor connected with Free Methodists and looked at what we were doing and what we were about and said, you know what, I, I like what you're doing and I'm going to become a free Methodist. And he went back to China and did mission work there that took off. And then World War II came around. And when World War II came around, all of, uh, all of the American missionaries in China had to leave. And so they left, and they went to different places. Some of them went to Hong Kong. If you remember your history, Hong Kong became a, was a British colony, and it was separated from mainland China by that. Um, and uh, some of them went to, across to the island of Formosa, we call now Taiwan. And we've had free Methodist work there for years and years. And some of them went to other places in the world, but everybody left China. And the thinking was, well, the... American and Canadian missionaries left, and so the Free Methodist Church just dissolved. And we kind of left it at that. And then, around the 1980s, a missionary couple who were based in Hong Kong got an invitation to come into China because um, Ruth, the wife, uh, Harry and Ruth, Ruth was a nurse, and she had worked among people with leprosy, and so the Chinese government said, well, would, would you come in and help us with some people suffering leprosy? So they started going across into China in the 1980s, and um, as they went across, they did this work among people suffering from leprosy, and very quietly said, oh, and by the way, we're free Methodist missionaries right over there in Hong Kong. And pretty soon someone came up and go, oh, that's interesting, because we're free Methodists too. And Harry said, no, you're not. We don't have any free Methodists left here. We left after World War II. And they looked at him and they said, what? What are you talking about? And so they invited them. They said, you need to come to our house very quietly. And they came to a meal and sat down in a house. And they said, all these people here with us, these are all free Methodists. And they go, no, no, we left. And they go, yeah. You left, but we're still free Methodists. I mean, it's amazing. The missionaries weren't there, but God still did something. (laughs) And these people, and and then what's happened is over the last 30, 40 years, we have unpacked that in the last 30 years. And what we have found is there are a lot of people that call themselves and identify with us as free Methodists because they've heard the story spoken again and again and again. And they have quietly and carefully and committedly lived out their faith. And they didn't need a white American there to do it. They just needed God's Holy Spirit. And you know, I just think those are the kinds of people, when I get to heaven, those are the kinds of people I want to slide up next to (laughs) 
And go, you know, if you can make it through that kind of history and still call me your brother, I, I'd be happy to be your next door neighbor up here. So that's just a story I want to share. But, you know, in this series, I want, to, I want to start with Free Methodist as a denomination because of what is happening in America today and people's feelings about denominations and why we still call ourselves that. Then next Sunday, we're going to talk about why we're here at Northwest. I mean, why get together here in this building, us, and what's, what is it that we're intending to be about for God and his kingdom. And then we're going to go on beyond that and, and, and we're going to talk about why we are worshipers and what that means. And when that's just where we're going to move to maybe the more interior, the more deeper spiritual aspects of this. And then we're going to end up with why we're together, why we're in community. So, and, and there's some things I want to draw out of that later on. So we're going to start with this, why we're free Methodists. And I want to remind you I missed a slide. I'll use this one. I want to remind you as we begin that we live in a world that I call, let me see if the slide's beyond this. Nope, it's a scripture. I would like to call a disintegrated world. Now, when something is disintegrated, we tend to think it's just somebody took a big old hammer and pounded it into little tiny pieces down to maybe even the size of powder and it's just gone. But really the world, the word disintegrated has to do with just taking something that was integrated, something that was together, and pulling it apart. And we can look all around us on a daily basis. We can see where things in our world are just becoming pulled apart. And things that used to be maybe close are distant. Things that used to be together are no longer together. And we can see this in all kinds of different ways. We can see it in marriage. We can see it in politics. We can see it in neighborhoods where instead of having a sense of being together and belonging together, I'm okay just being all by myself, just leave me alone. And we become disintegrated. We are no longer integrated. Not only that, this is an interior thing too, where in our lives we think, okay, um, I think I can manage my life in such a way that I can be this way with this group of people over here. I can be Pastor Hank with this group. And I can say all the right words, and I can quote scripture, I can sing songs, I can play guitar, and I'll be Pastor Hank with you guys. But with this group, when I'm with this group over here, I've got to be somebody else entirely because they know me in a different context. And so when I'm over here, I'm going to talk in different ways, I'm going to wear different clothes, and I, you know, I'm just going to have a different uh, affect to me, and I'm going to be a completely different person. And you think that sounds strange, but we all know people that I'm like this when I'm at work, but I'm at like this on Friday night. Or I'm like this when I'm at home with my family, but when I'm at the, with the guys, I'm like this. And it's, it's disintegrated. We no longer integrate our lives, and we kind of have a Jekyll and Hyde capacity about it. You remember the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? That, uh, it was written by, down by Robert Louis Stevenson, but it comes from a long history of the human struggle with people who have a disintegrated sense of personality. It goes back even to Greek mythology to a guy called Janus. 
this sense that I'm one way at one time and then I'm another way at another time and it depends on what time it is. And for in, in Louis Stevenson's story, it's the time of day. At night, I'm like this and in the daytime, I'm like this. In our culture, it's at work and at home or work and at church. For some people, it's, it's like this when I'm at home, and it's like this when I'm on vacation. I'm on vacation, so I'm just going to you know, kind of cut loose and do things I don't usually do. So here's the thing. I, I came across a picture of this guy because I think there's a lot of people who live a disintegrated life where they want aspects of faith and Christianity and following Jesus, but they don't want it everywhere all the time. That is a hindrance. So I want to wear a cross part of the time. I want, I'm going to put a fish on my car because maybe if I get pulled over, the cop is a Christian. <laughs> you know. um, or I, I, I'm, going to, you know, I'm going to have this thing where at the right times I'll say, oh, I'll pray for you. But the rest of the time, I don't really want people to know I'm a Christian. So I'll do that, but I want the convenience of setting my faith aside. <coughs> And disintegrating, taking it apart, so that at another time I can distance myself and look different. And I got to tell you, that kind of an existence is exhausting. It's exhausting. It wears us down. And that kind of an existence says a lot about what we believe about God. If we think God is there when we need him and can be dispensed of when we don't. The thing about God is he's not on our call. He's not on our schedule. He doesn't follow our agenda and he is always there. And so we can try to organize our lives to where I want God right here. If I'm in the hospital room, I want God. If I'm at the bar, I don't really want him. If I'm in a funeral home, I want God there. If I am in a movie theater, I really don't want God there. And we could go on, but we've disintegrated our lives and we say, well, you know, these things just don't have much to do with each other anymore. And so I come to this passage of Scripture where Jesus was asked, he was quizzed. It's one that some of you could quote. He was quizzed when someone came up to him and said, what is the most important command? What's the most important law? What's the greatest commandment? Because this is a person who goes, you know, I just, I want to know the high points. I want to know the important stuff because there's a lot of stuff I think is unimportant that I'd really like to ignore. And there is a sense of disintegration going on here. Tell me what's important. I'll do the important stuff and forget the details. And so they ask him this. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Great answer. He gives them a very succinct answer. He gives a great Sunday school kind of answer. A person who went to Sunday school, they could just rip off the answer and say, this is it, out of the book. This quote that he gives comes from the book of Deuteronomy where there's this little passage of a prayer and it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And 
the Jewish people called that the Shema. They had a word for it. And daily, a good Jew daily will quote this, will pray this prayer. Okay? So he does that. He says, that's the first and greatest commandment. But he doesn't stop. He goes on. He says, and the second is like it. I'll give you the first, and I'm going to give you the second. The second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. So all of a sudden, he takes these high points of, I love to have God around. I'm going to love God over here. But then he goes, your neighbor over here, you got this spiritual life over here, and you got this physical life over there. But these two are connected. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. And he does this thing where he just draws a really tight circle and he gets it all. It's there. And it's awfully hard for us to come back and go, you know, I think I'm okay with not doing this because it has nothing to do with God or my neighbor. Go looking for that. When you find it, let me know. So this disintegrated world we live in is the, I live one way on Sunday morning, another way on Friday night. I read my Bible and I treat my Bible like this, but in real life I, I live like this. So I read stuff in the Bible, but it's not really practical, it's not really applicable. I love the golden rule. You guys remember the golden rule? Sure. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then I say, but America first. So What? If you guys are suffering, dying, in poverty, whatever. So there's this sense, we come back to this Jekyll and Hyde where there's things I really like that really appeal to me and there's things I don't like and I'd like to disintegrate them. I'd like to take them apart so I can dispense with the other things that God goes, you can't do that. I want you to love God and I want you to love your neighbor and we're going to put it all together. Well, now I'm going to go to the one that was out of place here. Let me go back. There. There's a common denominator in this verse. I want you to love God and love your neighbor. And so this thing about love seems to be pretty important because it's in both of the two of the greatest commandments. It's in both of them. By the way, the purpose of the Free Methodist Church of the United States of America is to love God, love others, and make disciples. So we've taken this scripture, some of our leaders have taken the scripture and said, you know, I think you can distill the story, the message of the gospel to this. We'll go on to the make disciples next week, but This idea that loving God and loving others is key. It is crucial. If we do not have love, Scripture tells us that we are nothing more than an annoying sound. And and so Paul, he the Apostle Paul, he unpacks this for the church in Corinth because he, this was a church that they came together to worship. They kind of liked to get together to worship, and it got a little chaotic when they worshiped. But they were disintegrated in many many ways. And so when Paul writes to them, he goes, "You know, I want you to love each other, and this is what love looks like." And he gives this litany, and I I just read it recently at a funeral. Love is patient. Love is kind. And you guys remember 
But there's this sense of integrating love because if we have all these other things, if we have the ability to prophesy, if we have the ability to understand truth, if I have the ability to speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I'm the greatest orator, but I don't have love, it says I am, say it louder, nothing. Love seems to be an indispensable ingredient. It seems to be one that we cannot avoid. We cannot call this optional. And so when we talk about integrating our life and trying to live a life that is authentic and true and genuine, if love is not there, it won't matter. So what does it look like if love gets in, if love just runs its way all through everything we do? What does that look like? Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you that there will be things that I do and you just go, so, Pastor Hink, where is your love for God and others? And I'll just go, "Uh, yikes. Give me a minute. Let me think about this. There will be other times when you'll see it and you'll go, yeah, he's got it, he's got it. But then there will be times when you go, that does not look like love, Pastor Hink. Doesn't feel like love. Check your heart. But what does it look like if that's resident in us for that long? Let me race ahead here because I had that one out of order. When we love God and we love others, and we let it run its course all the way through, that means that there is no area of our life that is untouched. There is an integrity to us because whether you cut it off of this end or cut it off of this end, it's the same. You know, I remember my mom's cooking. I love my mom's cooking. She was a great cook. She, was a, she had the gift of hospitality. And one of the things I miss as my mom has battled dementia is she, uh, some time ago, she kind of lost her ability to fix food. And I miss that. And it sounds like it's nothing. It sounds trivial. But that was just an important thing for us because like many of you, one way that my mom expressed love to us as her family and to friends around us was to put on a meal that was well-prepared and really good food where we could sit around the table and laugh and share love with each other. A lot of you have experienced that too. Some of us, we've done it together, right? Some of us guys did it yesterday morning. But I remember my mom making meatloaf, and meatloaf is one of my favorite, it's comfort food to me, and some of you saw on Facebook, I just made a whole batch of meatloaf for get me through to next week. Um, (laughs) It should go more than that. But anyway, and, and my mom made meatloaf, and I loved meatloaf, and I came home from school, and, and you could smell it in the oven, and oh my goodness, this is wonderful. And mom let it go too long. And the bottom of the meatloaf got black. And so we, we sit down to eat, and, and it, I mean, it wasn't burned, but it was charred or something like that. And, and sitting down to eat, and mom starts cutting the meatloaf, and I go, Big piece, Mom. Give me a big old piece of that wonderful meatloaf. And she cuts the piece and she puts it on my plate and I look at it. And then it kind of flipped to the side. And you see the bottom. And Mom goes, just, just cut off that end. Because that end is not the same as the rest. And for some reason, in that moment, it's kind of like, 
this is not good enough. You know, in the mind of a child, this meatloaf has been forever scarred. Come on, parents, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, you do. There's no way I can eat the rest of this meatloaf because this little piece over here is defiled. We've all been there. And, you know, from the mouths of babes, right? Because in our lives, we can have all this stuff in order. We can have it look so good. It can smell wonderful. But when that one piece is rotten, we will turn up our nose. When one segment of our life is out of sync and disintegrated, we'll look at that and go, oh, We won't go, oh, wow, what wonderful meatloaf. Just cut off the end. We won't do that. We are whole people. And so we can't say, you know, I'm going to separate something off. So when we love God, issues that have to do, and I'm I'm going to point at a few here in a moment, but I just start with some of these high points. Issues that have to do with gender, issues that have to do with politics, issues that have to do with economics, race. If these are not conformed, Excuse me, if they're not conformed to the love of God, the whole piece of meatloaf stinks. If these do not fall in line with love God and love others, we're going to fall apart. Now, let me be real quick to follow that up by saying what the world defines and identifies as love is not always the way the Bible defines love. Because the world defines love as something easy and relaxed and feels good all the time. But we remember that Scripture gives us a different picture of love. Scripture says, this is love. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not a warm, pleasant, fuzzy, easy picture. And if that is love, then loving God and loving the world at times is difficult, has some friction to it, and pushes in ways that hurt. So let me hit a few high points that I think I should point out. So when, when we say, well, this is, this is why I'm free Methodist, Thank you. This is why I'm free Methodist. Here are some expressions that are really, really important to us. And, and I hit these and you go, man, Pastor Hing, you're doing a great job of just being politically correct in the last couple of years. These things are really important. By the way, these issues go all the way back to our founder in 1860. And a little bit beyond that because they were issues back then. And I think they're just human issues. I think humanity has battled these from the time that sin entered the world. So one of the issues that are an expression of free Methodism is our value of people. And that goes, and we just want to extend that to anybody, but we see it here. If we love God and we love people, so here's one thing that's big. Women, in in. Christian circles today, there are some that, in my opinion, devalue the contributions of women. 
And if you want to have a conversation about it, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about that. But here's the thing. Our founder, 150 years ago, said women should preach. You know why? Because God talks to women, too. And so that just became a big issue. And then out of that, we have built out of that a sense of how we bring the voices of women into the church. And it's not just clergy, it's not just being up here, it's not just Pastor Stephanie being a pastor, but it is this sense that we need to hear from women. I need to. That's one of the reasons why our leadership team is meeting this afternoon, and our leadership team, about half of the people, we try to come really close, half of the voices in the room, half of the people at the table are women. Here's why, guys, we know this. If it's all of us guys there, we're going to miss something. We're going to miss something, and I don't want to do that. If it's all of us guys in there, we're going to take a track where a woman might go, wait, wait, wait a minute, let's re-examine this. And we need that kind of wisdom. We need that kind of wisdom. So, there's that. By the way, um, there's this Facebook group. For those of you that have been Free Methodist for a long time, you might enjoy this. If you're more recent to Free Methodist, you might think, what in the world did they do back then? But it's called Growing Up Free Methodist. And it's a, it's a fun place for us to go and reminisce about things that we used to do in Free Methodism a long time ago. And um, our conference superintendent's wife, Mindy, posted something about a woman. Her name was May Armstrong, who had been a missionary in Africa, but she had lived in China. And uh, in World War I, she was on a boat called the Zamzam that was sunk, and she survived. And she went on to become a missionary in Africa, knew my parents. And we have this picture, and so my sister put it up on Facebook, of us standing there. I was a baby. I mean, I was Atticus's size right over here. And, and I am being held in my mom's arms, and she's standing next to Mae Armstrong, who at the time was an old lady. But her life, her experience, even to this day, people go, how amazing is that? And I'm grateful that Free Methodists 50 years ago said, we need to hear from her. So there's that one. The next one is laity. So we come out of a Methodist tradition. We come out of, and, and with the Methodist tradition, you take one more step back. We came out of the Church of England. And some of you remember history, John Wesley. You know, he was a, an Anglican priest and uh, started Methodism. And so you go back a little bit further and the Church of England had its roots in the Roman Catholic Church. And those of you that remember history, remember Henry VIII didn't like that he couldn't divorce the next wife. And so he just said, we're no longer Roman Catholic, let's just have our own church because I need a divorce. And the Pope wouldn't let him. Um, I think Henry VIII probably eventually learned that it didn't matter whether the Pope liked it or not. It mattered a lot more whether God did, but anyway... Um, but this is our history, this is our heritage, and in that track, if you go back to Church of England, Roman Catholic Church, there is a very high view of those in leadership. We give them a different name. Now, we no longer use those names. We don't, you guys don't call me priest. Occasionally, when I meet somebody around town, they'll say, oh, father, and I kind of smile because it reminds me of my daughter. Not you guys. No, it does. But... 
we don't use that terminology anymore, but we still see this, that the clergy is a form of the priesthood. However, when, when John Wesley came along, he realized that, you know, the people that were in authority in the church needed to connect better with the people who were in the pews of the church. And our founder, a guy by the name of B.T. Roberts, took that a step farther, and he said, you know, we need to empower the laity, the people who are just here on a Sunday morning, not preaching, but worshiping, and we need to allow as many of them to come in as possible. And there was an issue at the time that was going on in the Methodist Episcopal Church, and that was that the Methodist Episcopal Church, in their brilliance, had come up with a great way to make money. Those of you on the finance team, just plug your ears, because we ain't doing this. Okay? They came up with a great way to make money, and so what they did was they, they made seats and pews that were really ornate up at the front. They were really fancy and, I don't know, maybe more comfortable. But they, some of them were even boxed off, kind of like box seats at a sporting event. And if you wanted that, your family could make a contribution and you could pay for that pew and that was yours. And you could sit there every Sunday. And if by chance you missed church that Sunday, nobody else was allowed to sit there. So this is Stephen's pew over here. And Stephen sits here every Sunday, and I've noticed that when Stephen's not here, no one else sits there, because Stephen's given several hundred thousand dollars. That's right, he paid good money for this, which we're waiting for him to pay that bill. (laughs) (laughs) What happened was Robert saw this, and he goes, you know, and I know times have changed, because if we did this now, the really expensive ones would be right back there. Right? Stephanie's, yeah, I got mine. The times have changed, but what happened was they they canvassed the upper class of the community and said, you want this pew? You want this pew? Okay, can't afford the front row, but maybe the next one. So they, they sold off these pews to the point where they had sold every seat in the house. And the church made a lot of money, but if I had no money, and came to church on Sunday morning, there would probably be someone who looked around and, well, you know, the Andrews are missing, can't sit there. And, you know, Zousel, not here today, but can't take her seat. There's nowhere for you. And so those who were poor, underprivileged, were met at the door and they looked around and they said, there, there's nowhere for you here today. You can't be here with us. You could stand outside and listen. And Roberts was so bothered by that. And he goes, no, 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 no. Something needs to change here. And so he wrote lots of stuff about having free pews. And he said, no, take them away. Take them away from the rich people. And and in fact, he said, tear out the ornate pews. Take out the really pretty, fancy, comfortable ones and just put in benches. Everybody should just sit at a bench. Keeps you awake anyway. If you start to fall asleep, you'll fall over the back. But his, his passion was that every person who wanted to come in and hear the word of God and worship God from their hearts should come. Now fortunately, that practice fell away pretty quickly. People saw the flaw in it. But it didn't fall away before Roberts got booted, asked to leave, and started a new church. 
And when he started his own church, he said, we're not going to do it the same way. We're not just going to let pastors who know how to get a lot of money do this. We're going to let the laity have an equal say. So in this church, you get a say. It's not just me. Then the next issue that came up that's still an expression for us today is an expression that had to do with ethnicity. So at the same time that Roberts was upset about the poor and letting all people come in, there was a guy that was a Methodist preacher who had gone from the east where Roberts was in New York, and he had come to Chicago and then St. Louis. His name was John Wesley Redfield, and and I, I wished he had lived longer. Unfortunately, he died before the Free Methodist Church got started, but he challenged B.T. Roberts, he wrote to him and he said, you need to start another Methodist church because they're messing it up. And he said, you need to come to St. Louis and you need to visit me because I need to show you something. And so Roberts traveled to Chicago for something and then he wrote in his journal, he said, I'm going to travel down to St. Louis and I'm going to meet with Redfield. And so he did that. And when he got there, Redfield said, here's what I want you to do. And he went to Redfield's Methodist Episcopal Church because we hadn't split off yet. And Redfield said, come with me. And he went to the south part of St. Louis and he took him to a slave auction. He said, I want you to see this. And he knew that, that, that Roberts was from New York, way up in the north, and slavery wasn't pervasive up there and it wasn't something that was at the heart of what people were doing. But John Wesley Redfield saw this every week, and so he took Roberts, and Roberts wrote in his journal what he saw at the slave auction. And he was deeply distressed. And he went home, and he said, we are going to fight this. And he wrote several letters back to Redfield and said, we're going to fight this. We are not going to be about this. We're not going to do this to other people, regardless of the color of the skin or where they came from or how much money they have. And it became a hallmark in the beginning of the Free Methodist Church that we oppose slavery for the dignity, for the sake of the dignity of all people. In fact, you can go online and you can read what Roberts wrote, and it's a little distressing. So on the basis of ethnicity, we are not going to discriminate. Thankfully, uh, you know, our church, even though we said that, went through a long passage of history where, even though we had said that, we were pretty much white people, at least in America. We did a really good job of reaching people in places like India. You saw that up there with, with the wards in Africa, in Latin America. We did a pretty good job of reaching them, and we love those people as long as they're on the other side of the ocean. Right? But in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a real change in free Methodism in America. The video at the beginning was from General Conference in 2011. That was a while ago. We just had General Conference here in 2019 in Florida. And I am so thankful that at that event, there were so many people of color. And I just sit here and say, why did it take us 150 years to figure that out? I'm thankful that here in Wichita, at our sister church downtown, there are more black people than white that have said, we're free Methodists. We want to be a part of this. 
I'm so thankful that we have a heritage that doesn't say, you know, this is just politically correct right now. We, just, we need to be this kind of people. No, this is a spiritual thread that has run throughout our history. And then the, finally, this piece of poverty. Uh, Roberts, this probably moved him the most. And it, it was something that covered racial lines and gender lines. But he was so concerned about the poor and he felt like the church, the Methodist church at the time, had walked away from caring about the poor. And in fact, he appealed back to the, to the writings of John Wesley because Wesley had taken himself out of the pulpit and went out into a field to preach to coal miners who had to work seven days a week and couldn't afford to take a day off to go to church. And so Robert said, let's, let's be more like that. And I'm so thankful that free Methodists throughout our time have found ways and have had hearts tuned toward looking at connecting with people who miss out because they don't have resources. And it's happened in different ways. In the 1960s in Hong Kong, it happened where they saw that children were left alone because their parents were both working. And so Alton Gould, this great guy who was my prayer partner for years, he was a missionary in in Hong Kong. He wrote to me in college. I loved it. And Alton Gould was a missionary there, and he saw all these kids. So he said, hey, you know what? Just bring your kids, and we'll watch them while you're at work. And they had so many show up, the only place they could fit them all was on the roof of the building. And so there are pictures, if you go to Indianapolis to our World Ministry Center, there are pictures of Alton Gould standing there in a suit with all these little Asian kids in Hong Kong on the roof of the building playing games and singing songs. And that was the birthplace of what is now what we call International Child Care Ministries, which is a child sponsorship and school provision uh, program across the world, and it's powerful. Because Alton Gould saw these children don't have resources and they're being neglected, and as soon as he opened that up, they were flooded with children. As a structural engineer, I do not rec- recommend <laughs> putting children on the roof of a building. Thankfully, God watched over them. Yes, so. This has been something that we have always looked for and found ways to address. At one point in our history, free Methodism took off just like a a fire in rural areas because free Methodist pastors advocated for the farmers. This is another part of our history because farmers were struggling and they didn't make a whole lot of money and pastors felt like the farmers were being taken advantage of by large corporations and so they began advocating for farmers. And of course then, you go into a community with a bunch of farmers and you tell them, look, this is what we're doing because we think you should be able to make some more money. It became pretty popular. And we could go on and on with that and how... We have done and worked uh, to eliminate poverty. Well, here's the thing. I, I come back to this word. I think that when we love God and we love others, it is the way that we ourselves become whole, and it's the way that we call the rest of the world to become whole. We're no longer disintegrated people. We're no longer people who are fractured and having one sense over here and another sense over there. It is how we are one. So here's the thing, folks. Being a free Methodist means that we wrestle with being authentic all the time 
and looking for the value in every person we encounter. That's wholeness. That's wholeness. And so I want you to look at that, not in the sense of, well, you know, Pastor, I think you're a free Methodist because your parents, your grandparents, and so on, they were free Methodists. That's partially true. But there was a point in my life where I was an adult and I could make my own decisions, and I looked at this and I decided, you know what? This is where I want to land. Some of you came here and you landed here just because somebody loved you. Just because you walked in the door and somebody put their arm around you and said, hey, what, what's your name and how can I be your friend? And that's great. But now maybe you've learned that there's other aspects of free Methodism. One of you was telling me just the other night that I came here and I found out that I can actually engage with people who don't have what I have. 